I always feel so awkward whenever I record a free-flowing podcast. So most of my podcasts are based on stories, stories of my past, stories of people around me. Others have obviously been interviews and I've had people to bounce my ideas off of and to have a soundboard around me. But when I'm just talking to myself, looking straight to the mic, and I don't even know what it is that I'm trying to say, That scares the hell out of me. And I always feel like I'm going to say something wrong. But every time that I get confronted with this problem, I remind myself that whether or not I write something down or it just comes straight from my mouth into that mic, into your ears as sound waves and perceived in your mind as my voice, those are still my words and they still are valid. And I think some things are just better when you just spit it out. You just need to spit it out. Kanye says, sometimes you need to say the crazy stuff so that you know you ain't crazy. Okay. And today's episode is going to be just that. Today's episode is going to be a mouthful because there's a lot of stuff to unpack. There's a lot of stuff that I want to speak about. And I don't think you can write a neatly packaged, concise flowing story about some of the topics we're bringing up today because today we're talking about the dirty r yes we're talking about racism and we're not just gonna end it there we're gonna talk about cancel culture we're gonna talk about identity politics actual politics and how all of these things come together so buckle up i hope you're sitting comfortably because it's about to get hella hella uncomfortable okay Okay, so let's dive right into it. Earlier this week, I was on Twitter and Gareth Cliff's name keeps coming up on my timeline. And lately, I've really just been on Twitter for the banter. I don't even want to lie. I just go there for the geeky geese and I head out. I log off. But this man's name was coming up on my timeline continuously. When I say incessantly, because my vocabulary is top notch. So I'm going to flex that real quick. It was incessant the popping up of his name. So I go to the Twitter search bar, I search his name to figure out why he's trending so much because I couldn't really make some sort of connection. And it turns out that he has this podcast called The Burning Platform. Yes, it's called The Burning Platform where he interviews different guests about different things. And right now, unless you don't know, it is election season in South Africa. In five days time, we're actually going to the polls and we're going to be voting for our local government. We're going to be voting for ward councillors. We're going to be voting for mayors and we're going to be voting for which district you fall under. And y'all better go out and vote. I know a lot of y'all did not even register to vote. But we're going to talk about voter apathy. Child, let me write that down before I forget. Mm -mm. Let me write that down because I know I might just... hmm, hmm, I might just forget. Hmm, So we were talking about Gareth Cliff. Oh, so as I'm searching through these tweets and filtering out all this information, I come across this two minute and 20 second clip where... Gareth is on the left, there's a lady in the middle that I don't know, and there's John Steenhazen, the leader of the Democratic Alliance. And so I watched this video, and the video is taken completely out of context, obviously, because I I don't I didn't even know about the burning platform. And I watched the video, and in particular, the video was the lady in the middle, her name is Muduri. Muduri starts speaking about how um she experiences racism as a black woman in South Africa. 
And Gareth goes and interjects and tells her, nobody really cares about your anecdotes of racism. Nobody cares about racism in this particular election because people are more focused on poverty and hunger and service delivery. Give me water, give me lights, give me um, sanitation, give me picking up my trash. Don't talk about race. Nobody really cares. And on the right hand side, John Stian Hazen is just smirking, you know, looking like he's enjoying all of this. And I really don't like making commentary on things until I fully understand the foundations of the conversation. So what did I do? I went and I watched the hour interview on YouTube. I downloaded the video because I wanted to watch it without any disruptions, without any ads. So I downloaded the video and I watched it. And in the beginning, everything's all good. Everybody's just introducing themselves. Muzuri is a representative of 1SA, an organization that was started by Musi Maimane after he left the DA. And it supports independent candidates because earlier this year, the Constitutional Court made a ruling that independent candidates will actually be allowed to take part in elections, right? Because South Africa's electoral system is structured in such a way that in order to make some sort of impact or in order to be in the political landscape in any shape or form, you need to be affiliated with a political party. And so we are a party-based system. We have a party-based democracy in South Africa. That's why we have those leading parties, the ANC, the DA, the EFF, these newer parties, um, One Essay, Action Essay, Good, all these different parties. And I think there's over a hundred and something different parties to choose from. So earlier this year, the Constitutional Court made this ruling that people can stand as individuals to run as ward councillors, to run as mayors and so forth in all the different sort of executive positions we have in our government system. Cool. So that's where Muduri fits in. Then we have John Stienhazen, the leader of the Democratic Alliance, da-da-da-da-da. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Who doesn't know the DA? Do you understand? I had to explain who the new kid on the block is, but everybody knows who the DA is. Cool. Um, It was a conversation to try and get more clarity on where the different parties stand. Um, Muzuri obviously had to do a lot more explaining because nobody really knows who one essay is. What are they doing? What kind of independent candidates are they supporting? Because obviously when you have a political party, anybody can really join as long as they just pay a membership fee and align with your values and whatever goals you have. But how do you pick out independent candidates? How do you even support them? All of that. And they were talking about all this beautiful stuff, electoral reform, da, 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 da. Great. Now, bringing this to the heart of this conversation around halfway into the conversation um i think gareth is the one that brought it up gareth brought up the phoenix massacre or it's been labeled in the media as the phoenix massacre so the phoenix massacre is basically what happened during the looting around july august when in kzn there was like a lot of racial tension between black and Indian people in the community of Phoenix in KZN. And a lot of people were killed. Um, A lot of property was damaged. And there was a lot of hatred along racial lines. Um, But a lot of people did a lot of good as well, where they were helping each other out in their communities, protecting things from not being stolen, cleaning up whatever had been damaged, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. I think we all watch the news. So... After this, the DA had this campaign or this advertisement that was going around where they had these posters 
they that they put up on lampposts, I think around Phoenix, that said, the ANC called you racists, we call you heroes. Something along those lines. So Gareth brings up these posters and he asks, why did you guys take down the posters? Because obviously they caused a bit of a ruckus in the media and the DA started taking down the posters. So John explains it and he says that the posters were actually taking away or they were distracting from the message that the DA is trying to get across. And the the message that the DA is trying to get across is that the DA gets things done. They bring about service delivery, they help people, da 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 da, whatever other values they mention in their manifesto. And this entire racists, heroes type of vibe that they were trying to bring across by how do I what I want to think of the exact words this man used. Um, oh, he said that they want to kind of, um, how do I put it? What's the word? Acknowledge or applaud. (laughs) They want to applaud. They want to applaud anybody that stood up for the right of law, right? That's why saying we're not calling you racists, we're calling you heroes. And this entire dynamic between where does racist end, where does heroism begin, it kind of caused a ruckus on social media, as I mentioned before. And so they said bringing the posters down would kind of bring bring people's focus back onto what the DA's mission is during these elections. And so Muzuri was like, okay, wait, what's, what's going on here? Because earlier on, you guys said that the ANC is focusing a lot on race relations they make everything about race but when you guys do it when you guys weaponize race it's okay right it's okay that's that's kind of weird and gareth tried to spin it off like "Mm, local government elections aren't really about race nobody really cares about that stuff just give me water lights electricity i'd really like you guys if you haven't already to watch the interview um, to try and get a bit more context, because I really don't want to be misquoting anyone, and I don't want to, um, <laughs> I don't want to make, I don't want to make this misguided in any way. But um, Muzuri was talking about how she experiences racism in a way that Gareth and John would not be able to understand, in the same way that many black people and many black women, in particular, experience racism in ways that may not be understood by people that are not in their shoes. And Gareth is like, dude, nobody cares. <laughs> nobody cares. Uh, he brings up this report by the IRR that more people are focused on hunger or alleviating their hunger and their poverty than being worried about race. But now this is me speaking. Now we're taking all these people out of the equation. I really do not believe that we can have a functional political system. We cannot have a functional society without addressing race and identity politics, because these things are so largely intertwined. You cannot divorce the two. They are married for life in community of property. They share belongings, okay? They share mad belongings. So it's not possible to try and talk about one without the other. Why do I say this? I think it's really insulting to talk about how you want service delivery, you want things like water, electricity, basic services from the government, but you don't want to talk about how race plays a factor in all of these things because in more affluent areas that are predominantly white, that are wealthier, service delivery is not an issue, baby. Service delivery is not an issue. Whereas in 
minority communities that are less well off, that's where things become a bit sticky when it comes to service delivery. And where do these two things intersect? Along racial lines. Because in your whiter, more affluent areas, you have more access to services, you have more Karens that are able to complain and that are able to have their voices heard when they complain in comparison to your smaller minority neighborhoods that are more cramped with more people with more issues that don't get the attention that they deserve. And what minority communities are these? Black, colored, and Indian communities. Hmm. So these local government elections are really not about race, huh? What do you mean by this? <laughs> what do you mean by this? I was I was a bit baffled because you can't really separate those two things. I think race in South Africa has formed a basis for a lot of things because of the way that apartheid played out. And I mean, the communities that we live in are still segregated along racial lines. So I don't, I don't really know what Mr. Cliff is, what Mr. Cliff was trying to get at. I, I don't really know, man. I don't. I don't know i don't really know but i think it's also really disheartening to see how he tried to discredit and invalidate mazuri's feelings and not just her feelings but her experiences just because this was supposed to be quote-unquote a logical conversation and she's bringing in anecdotal evidence right this is something that i've also kind of struggled with how do we expect to have functional conversations when we can't bring up our past experiences when we can't bring up our lived experiences without being labeled as though we're emotional and we're being illogical and irrational right just because you can't quantify or even qualify your experiences does that make them invalid and another important thing that a lot of people kind of don't understand is that just because you haven't experienced something does not mean it doesn't exist. There was a time in my high school where this racial incident made its way onto social media. And this parents meeting was called in where like a random selection of parents from different like backgrounds, different races, ethnicities, um, all came together to this meeting where they had to discuss the racial incident. And I remember my mom playing me a recording of the meeting and this lady's like my child has been in the school for however many years and they have never reported an incident of racism they get along with the black kids they get along with the white kids with the colored kids all the kids my kid has never experienced racism i'm like run it back turbo the math is not mathing right now okay just because you have not seen just because you have not experienced something does not mean it doesn't really exist, right? If that were the case, we could make the argument that just because you have never experienced sexual assault in South Africa, South Africa is the safest place for women to be. Do you see how there's a bit of a logical fallacy here? So I think trying to discredit someone's experiences about race especially a black woman's experiences about race is really dangerous, right? Because you're silencing voices that are actually in the minority in terms of being heard, um, voices that are influential if we're going to be trying to make valid changes. 
Why do I say this? Black women have been silenced for a very long time in society. And they still are pretty silenced. Uh, yeah, we've made strides. Yeah, we're making progress. Da, 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 da. But black women are still put into these positions where they, A, are talked over. B, are not listened to fully. Or C, their ideas are not even taken into implementation. Like, how many things in society would become a lot better if we listened to the concerns of black women? If we listened to their concerns about safety? If we listened to their concerns about consent? If we listened to their concerns about relationships to society, economics, our environment? Ciao. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. I don't know, man. I really, really don't know. But another thing that I actually wanted to speak about while we're still on the concept of blackness and being a black woman or a black girl in our society is shrinkage, right? So a lot of people <laughs> associate shrinkage with <laughs> the way your hair looks when you come out of the shower, you know, when it's coiling back, looks like a turtle, you know, going back into its shell, you know, when your homegirl becomes shy, you know, your hair just goes a little like, you know what I'm saying? She goes into mushroom mode where she just shrinks, you know? But I think we experience a lot of shrinkage in society as black girls as well. And the prime example for me was when I used to do ballet. I was a ballet dancer for about five years, about five years from around 2014, 2015 until 2020. I danced at a ballet studio, um, in Johannesburg and in the beginning I really enjoyed ballet my mom kind of coerced me into doing it because my cousin did it as well and I really began enjoying it I I enjoyed I began enjoying it does that make sense oh okay I began enjoying it and I grew a deep interest in learning more about the history of ballet current ballet dancers that were doing big things in the world and I found so many people that were doing great things in ballet in South Africa and across the globe. And I came across this dancer called Misty Copeland and she's a black ballerina in the United States and she's fantastic. She's absolutely brilliant. There were a number of other black ballerinas that I found in South Africa. There's a lady, her name starts, it's either Katie or Kathy in South Africa, but I forgot her surname. And this other lady from Brazil as well. And I was like, oh my gosh, black girls in ballet, purr. You know what I'm saying? And it was really interesting to see that sort of representation in the world of ballet. But when I zoned in and I zeroed into my own ballet career, I was like, ah, uh, ah, uh, ah, uh, ah. Uh. This place is a bit restrictive for people that look like me or Misty Copeland or Sylvia or Kathy. First of all, ballet is really really eurocentric in its standards first of all you need to wear these pink tights <laughs> you wear the pink tights because in theory they're supposed to match with the tone of your skin so that the examiner can actually see the different um contourings on your legs when you're moving um see the different lines that your muscles make as you're bending and all of that pretty stuff and also hair policies. When you go to a ballet exam, you need to put your hair up into a bun and you need to cover it with this little hair net. And at the time I still had dreadlocks, but my dreadlocks were kind of short. And I remember I had to like, I had to, girl, 
I had to squeeze and pull and hey, I had to do all kinds of numbers to try and get my hair into a pony, a bun, right? Even though my hair didn't even allow that. And <laughs> the last ballet exam that I had, I had short hair and you also have to put this little bow into your hair. I had short hair and was this auntie not like, child, where are we going to put the bow in your hair? Because it ain't even going to stick. It ain't even, where do we, where do we put it? Child, we're just going to put it on your leotard, per. That's, that's it, period. <laughs> right? But it becomes a bit disheartening when there's only one or two people in certain spaces that look like you, that give you representation. And I know rep representation is kind of a buzzword when it comes to ID politics, um, about representation and being able to be seen and to be heard. But this is a real thing. When you see more people that look like you, that act like you, you feel less like an anomaly. You feel more like you just feel normal, right? You feel like you're not an odd one out. You feel like, okay, I'm actually, I'm actually okay. Um, I think human beings want to resonate with each other and just feel like, okay, there's nothing weird about me being black and in ballet, right? Um, but also in my in my dance studio, I was the only black girl there. Um, certain conversations that people would have like would would really just not be inclusive to me. Um, and people were not cognizant of the fact that I was there when they'd have conversations about race. They'd blatantly blatantly talk so much smack about black people in certain instances and i'll just be there like doom 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 you know it was really really super super awkward and i will never never not a single day in my life forget <laughs> when i was asked to come to um one of the ballet rehearsals for the small like preschool girls to help them out in you know changing outfits and doing all of that kind of stuff and <laughs> ah the basis of asking me was so that i can be an inspiration to the other small black girls and I felt absolutely appalled. I did not go. I was like, no thanks. Um, I got something going on that day, girl. But love and light to you. I really don't like the idea as well of being the representative of all Black people, which is why we need more spaces and more voices of Black women and minority people in spaces so that you don't feel like you have to be the poster child for Black people everywhere. And I used to be, I used to be hyperracial. I think that's a term that I've coined now, hyperracial. I used to be very vocal about race and talk about race, you know, without any sort of inhibitions about it. And I think that's a very important stance to have, to be able to talk about race and all of that. But I don't think it should get to a point where it consumes you where you kind of branded as the angry black girl, the one who's always going to be talking about race, right? Um, there was a time in high school when a teacher walked past a group of my friends and I and were talking about race. And she said to me, why are you always talking about race? Why can't you talk about something else? Okay, um, first of all, it's kind of my lived experience. Um, it's my favorite social construct, you know? <laughs> Does it even get better than racism? <laughs> but 
I think there's also a sad and heavy burden of being the person to always call out race, being the person to always educate people about race and race relations. In big 2021, nah, it's really, it's tiring. It's absolutely exhausting. And sometimes you just want to be allowed to be. You just want to be Ayanda, who enjoys Lipton tea with rose water and cardamom, you know, and a splash of milk. You just want to be Ayanda, who does ballet. You want to be Ayanda, who's interested in politics. Not Ayanda, who is obsessed with politics, radical, um, the savior of all black people. No, 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 no. And I think black people and black women in particular are stripped of their agency to be whoever they want to be from a young age. We're confined into these boxes where we are constantly sponged off of to teach other people how to navigate their way through society without harming us. And that's a very tiring space to be in. And so I think around last year, I kind of decided, nope, I'm unplugging from all of this stuff. I don't want to be the poster child for all black people. Um, I still care a lot about race and racism and trying to make our world a better place. But I'm done being a social justice warrior. Like, unless it warrants a healthy conversation that's not going to make me feel poo-poo afterwards, I'm, I'm down for it. But if it's going to be impeding on my peace impeding on my growth as an individual and my ability to just navigate through the world as a normal kid like everybody else ah miss me with that miss me with all of that but this conversation with gareth also made me question whether or not cancel culture really is effective i feel like i have such a (laughs) i have such an awkward relationship when it comes to cancel culture I used to be so okay with cancel culture when it was people that meant absolutely nothing to me. That meant nish to me. Yeah. R. Kelly, cancel him. Bill Cosby, throw him to the, throw him to the pigs, child. Okay. But then when people started canceling or trying to cancel my faves, I was like, ah, yeah, it's a bit of a sticky one, man, because... How does cancel culture even work? (laughs) Do I stop listening to your music completely? Do I listen to it in private and be like, oh man, I love this jam. Now congratulate me. But in person, I'm like, oh my gosh, that guy was moving mad, didn't it? You know what I'm saying? How do I, how do I navigate that? But I think we need to just realize or strike a balance in our society where we learn where to cancel and where to educate. Some people are beyond redemption. There's some people who A, don't want to be educated or B, claim they want to be educated but still fall back into the same old, same old stuff. Um, then we just we just leave them be, right? But I think the biggest <laughs> the biggest thing is to kind of go with your own instincts as an individual. You know, if you believe that somebody's opinions um, change the way that you viewed them as your fave, girl, don't listen to them anymore. Don't engage with their content anymore. I think in the social media life that we live right now, or the social media fueled life that we live, it's kind of difficult to harbor all these feelings against people that you A, don't even know, B, don't even have close proximity to, and C, they don't even care about you. To harbor all these feelings is 
actually just negatively impacting you, they don't care at them no matter what. So you just need to choose peace on your end and do what fulfills you as an individual. But I think cancel culture is not really effective because sure, you cancel them, but that doesn't really cancel the views and harmful opinions that they have. You know, they're still a detriment to society. You're just cutting them off from the mainstream. You're just making sure that nobody in the mainstream or nobody that doesn't agree with them is able to engage with them anymore. But their supporters and people that actually align with their beliefs, they're still together in the crook place. So I don't, I don't really know. I don't really know. But yeah, um, I think that's about it for me. Oh, voter apathy. Before we forget. Uh, I think I was an apathetic voter <laughs> this year. Well, before before I was able to be eligible to vote, right? Because I only ten, I only turned 18 this year. So I registered to vote. But earlier this year, I did not want to vote because A, I felt like there's no party that represents me well. Um, there, I still believe that there's no one political party that's better than, than another. Um, they're all flawed in some type of way because A, they're run by human beings and B, politicians are just liars and frauds <laughs> everywhere across the world. <laughs> Unless you're Barack Obama. And if you're listening to this, Barack, I love you, sir. But, you know, unless uh, unless, you're, unless you're the creme de la creme, all politicians are the same. <laughs> Even the creme de la creme have their own flaws and shortcomings. But all politicians are the same. But in the same way that we have the right to vote, uh, according to the Constitution, we also have the responsibility of voting people into power that we believe are going to be doing our country justice and are going to better our country and better our lives, especially the most vulnerable, the most vulnerable people in our society. So I was like, Ish, I, a lot of y'all are not looking like you are protecting the rights of the most vulnerable people in our society. Eh? You know, it's a bit of a sticky one, but um, I've kind of changed my mind. I still don't know who I'm going to be voting for. Um, it's a bit tricky. It's a bit tricky, but I think voting voting for someone voting for the better devil is better than not voting at all so if you are registered to vote i'd encourage you to go out um make your mark get your voice heard and yeah we are kind of the generation that's next up in living as active participants in this society and the onus is upon us to try and shape this country into what we want it to be what I find crazy is how there's certain nations that kind of sprung up overnight because of good leadership, because of a common wanting to be better, and also just leadership that wanted a better country. Um, the United Arab Emirates, um, Saudi Arabia. Okay, sure, they have a lot of money. They got a lot going on. Okay, par granted. But ideas and material wealth also needs to be coupled with good leadership um, with people living within the country that actually want the country to be better. So we need to play our part. If you're registered to vote, go out there, get your voice heard. And yeah, let's, let's make Southie, let's make Southie great again. <laughs> Sorry, Donald Trump. I'm actually going to be working during this voting weekend. I'm going to be part of the IEC staff working at a voting station. 
Um, and it's going to be an interesting experience. I've learned a lot about the voting process the past couple of weeks and I'm really interested to see it playing out live. This is my first time as a participant in the voting process, not only as a staff member of the IEC, but also as a voter. And I, I really can't wait. And I want to become active in the decision making and the changes that are going to be happening firstly within my community from these local government elections, but also when the big picture things come, because you need to be faithful in the small things first before you can be faithful in the big things. You know, if we know how to handle ourselves in the small matters and be able to bring up the small issues in our own communities, then only can we build up and bring up national issues. So my ward counselor is going to be hearing from me. Okay. When the streetlights ain't working, Okay, when the paint on the road is fading out and I don't see where the stop sign is, okay, when um, the traffic lights are out, when the water is cut off, she will be hearing from me, okay? And I encourage you all to find out who your ward councillors are. Ask them what it is that they're going to be doing differently this election season. There's posters everywhere, people. And depending on what party your current ward councillor is from, you can just go into the party's website, search for the councillor's name, get their contacts and get into contact with them. Talk to them. Tell them about your grievances. Tell them about certain plans that you might have. Because I know there's a certain plan, you know, that I want to um, put into action in my little community. But more on that in another episode. But yeah, um, I think that's about it for me. I think I think that's where I think that's where we're going to shut this shut this train down. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you have an enjoyable October further. Um have a blessed day. May it be productive or not. Cuz if it's not that's okay too. And if it's not, we'll try again tomorrow.